0: If you're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, say amen together. All right, we touched on verses 1 through 3 to start our series last week, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. Today I was going to do 4 through 10, and then I began to write the message. And after I got done with the first point, I was at 2,500 words. And usually my sermons are just over 3,000, and there's no way I was going to fit all the rest of the verses into... So I I cut it in half. We're doing a two-part message tonight... Um, It's really one message, but we're going to preach it in two parts. So this is the first part, and you can thank me for that after this. Um, But I sure want to be mindful of your time, but also want to do justice to the Word of God. So we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. Would you read those together with me? Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. For the next two Sunday nights, we'll preach on this topic, the impact of the gospel. The impact of the gospel. The Apostle Paul and his missionary team planted a church we discussed last week in this very influential but pagan city called Thessalonica. As was their custom, they started by preaching the gospel in the Jewish synagogue. He did that for three weeks, and Acts chapter 17 tells us that upon being there three weeks and preaching the gospel, that not many Jews believed, but many non Jews believed, and a church was started. They were meeting this small group of believers in the house of Jason when the Jewish authorities broke in. They heard Paul and Silas, who had just planted a church and got out of prison for it in Philippi, had made their way to their city, and now they were going to go to Jason's house, beat down his door, and try to get these guys back in prison. Paul and Silas weren't there. So they took Jason in and charged him with treason, let him out on bond. And when Paul and Silas saw what they did to Jason, they knew they couldn't stay. It would threaten Jason's uh, freedom and and, and his life. So they left this three-week-old baby church on its own in the midst of a very hostile city. I can imagine as Paul and Silas and Timothy are walking away from Thessalonica, they begin to have these discussions about this new church they started, an exciting three weeks in Thessalonica, but they didn't walk away necessarily excited as much as they were fearful and nervous for this baby church. I can imagine Timothy saying, Paul, do you think they're going to make it? I mean, we've never planted a church and just left like this. And, And not to mention the place in which they are trying to thrive as a hostile place. Silas would chime in and say, Yeah, Paul, I just, I don't think they're going to make it. How do you think they're going to make it? And I can imagine the great apostle Paul would respond some way like this. Well, guys, I hate that we had to leave. I'm deeply concerned about them. But I can imagine him saying something like this to his missionary partners. I guess we're going to see now if their faith is real. The only way they're going to survive the hostility and persecution of the Jewish authorities in Thessalonica is if they're really saved. Months pass by. Paul's already been to Berea. He's already been to Athens since leaving Thessalonica. Now he finds himself in Corinth, and he can't get his mind off of this baby church that he left when they were only three weeks old. He was so concerned about them that he sent young Timothy, as he often did, to check in. On this baby church. Timothy came back with a glowing report. We talked about this last week. He, he told Paul they were not merely surviving. They were thriving. Specifically in three areas. Their faith, their love, and their hope. So then when Paul gets his pen out. And he begins to write this letter to the Thessalonians. He's writing back to them with like this overwhelming sense of thankfulness. And he's affirming this thriving church in the midst of a hostile world for having a faith that worked and a, a love that labored and a hope that endured. And I could just imagine him, upon hearing the news from young Timothy, just shouting at the top of his voice, Yes! They're doing good. Silas, did you hear it? I know you doubted them. Well, I, was, I, I might have doubted them a little bit. But man, they are... Thriving, I could imagine them giving each other a hug. Maybe him and Silas broke out in the same song they sang in the, Phil- the Philippian jail. I don't know, but they, I think there was pure joy. And you know why? Because it affirmed in Paul's mind that they were indeed changed by the gospel. And, and, and Paul was happy about this. So much so that in verse 4 he says, knowing... Brethren, beloved, your election of God. In verse 3, he was was stating his thankfulness for their present condition. In verse 4, he begins talking about their past conversion. And he said, I recall in my mind the three weeks that I preached the gospel to you in Thessalonica and how you received the gospel and were gloriously saved. And now I'm riding with you with thankfulness because I know your election of God. In other words, I'm confident that when God chose to intersect your life with the gospel, you chose to receive it by faith. By the way, God does choose to draw you. But you also choose. You choose to accept God's free gift to salvation. And anybody that will tell you that you don't have a choice in the matter is preaching a false doctrine. And that's not even the point of verse number four, but I thought I would say the fact that we believe that the gospel is a whosoever will gospel. That we understand the book of John says that no man comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Spirit of God, right? You've got to be convicted and and God's got to intersect your life with the gospel. Uh, But when he does, he he doesn't give you this sense of irresistible grace to where you have to do it. You get to choose, and I'm thankful we get to choose, by the way. But the question of the text is this. How did the Apostle Paul know their election or know their salvation was sure? How could he be so confident that they indeed did receive the gospel? Here's how. Because of the obvious ways in which it impacted their lives, which is the essence of verse 5 through 10. So for Paul to hear from Timothy how well they were doing, how steadfast they were remaining, remaining, caused him to say, I know you're the real deal. I know that when I preached the gospel to you in that Jewish synagogue, that you weren't just turning over a new leaf. You just weren't responding to an, an emotional appeal. This is not a working of man. I know that God worked in your heart. You received the gospel by faith because it has changed your life. Hear me please, when you truly receive the gospel, it will always make an impact on your life. No change, no conversion. Please don't misunderstand me. Don't don't go to to some type of morality scorecard and say, oh man, I guess I I just don't think I'm, I'm changing like I should. That's the quickest way to start doubting God's love for you. And start doubting your salvation. You don't keep a scorecard because God doesn't keep a scorecard. Hallelujah to that. That's why I doubted my salvation for so long. Because I didn't feel saved when I did wrong. I'm thankful that God still forgives me. And he's faithful as I confess my sins. Forgive me. cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Now hear me. If over time there is no sanctification. Progressive sanctification, by the way. Not overnight. But as you apply yourself to hear the Word of God, place yourself under the preaching of the Word of God. Surround yourself with fellow believers. If your faith isn't strengthened, it might be because it's not there. If there's never any growth in desire, never any change in attitude, never any any U-turns in your life to change the path in which you are forging, then I would submit to you that the gospel hasn't impacted your life. And something as powerful as the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it gets in you, it makes a difference. It's just going to. It's too big not to. And and so we're just going to look at verse 5. Because really the the, the two-part message breaks down in two questions. Number one, how does the gospel come? And number two, what difference does the gospel make? Verse 5, how does the gospel come? Verse 6 through 10 ...is going to talk about the difference the gospel makes. It came to the church of Thessalonica in five ways... ...and it comes to us and through us today in the same ways. Let's begin with this one. The gospel comes in word. In word. Look at verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. Now Paul is going to make a strong point with the rest of the verse... ...that the gospel doesn't come by words alone... But we can't overlook the fact that the gospel still does come through spoken or written or sung word. It does. In fact, you can go back to Acts 17, verse 3, and it records the words that the Apostle Paul spoke of the gospel, opening opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news that he preached for three weeks in this Jewish synagogue, Acts chapter 17. And not many Jews were saved, but many non-Jews were saved. Romans 10, verse 13 and 14 supports the idea that the gospel is to be spoken. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then watch how he just begins to logically reason with us. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? By the way, for something to be heard, it has to be spoken. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Aren't you thankful that somebody at some point spoke to you about the gospel? Aren't you thankful that God sent a preacher of some sort your way and you weren't left to figure out the gospel on your own? Romans 10.14 asks the question, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Let me ask you, who was the preacher in your life? Who told you about the gospel? That's a good question. I'm going to take five from each side. Just because I want to hear it. And by the way, the preacher isn't just the one standing behind the pulpit. It could be a parent. It could be a grandparent. It could be a coworker, It could be somebody that, that you maybe don't even hardly know anymore. But who is the preacher God used to tell you about the gospel? Who, what side wants to start first? All right, Olivia. Your mom, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So peers, siblings, amazing. Brother Gary. High, high, school buddy. high school buddy. You listening, teenagers? You listening? Are you listening? Give me a nod, give me something. <laughs> this is good for you. Carla. Your eye doctor. Amazing. It is an amazing story. Karen. Karen. Candy Prater, look at that. Uh, woodshop, teacher, woodshop teacher. Praise the Lord. Public school teachers, you got a great, great opportunity. Miss Donna? Kids' daycare provider. That's who told Candy, too. Brother Steve? Frank Potts. He's in heaven today, but he, I think he got a crown for telling you about Jesus. Brother Joel? Pastor Prater. Praise the Lord. Brother Monty? Brother Landis. Brother Landis. Praise the Lord. Brother Junior? Lori Navarro. Lori Navarro. I remember when Junior got saved. He was a center back. That's the defensive player on the, on the state soccer team. That was the, the year where a lot of those guys got saved. Junior, raise your hand so everybody can see you. I want, I want everybody to see you. He's in our services tonight. And uh, I, re, I remember, he, he's now pastor's personal trainer. Can you believe that? <laughs> you work him hard, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I, 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 remember when you got saved. I remember a lot of your teammates got saved. It was an amazing year, wasn't it? It's was incredible. Marcella. Katie Prater. Awesome. Let's go to this side. Who was the preacher that told you about the gospel? Sheila? Wow. It's incredible. A junior high girl that brought her Bible to school. Is that right? It's awesome. Really cool? <laughs> really? Of Israel? Did you, I mean, did you get us? I mean, yeah, I would have had him sign my sling or something, man. Who else? Yes. Because. Youth pastor. It's awesome. Who else in this section? All right, Salvador and then your wife? Brother Andrew. Miss Erica. Your Aunt Karen Cindy, Mrs. Landis, it's great. Miss Rita, mom. your mom, awesome. We'll let the teenagers get in on this. All right, your parents, your parents, you and me and brother Andrew. Which one, man? You got to pick one. <laughs> we don't share crowns in heaven. It <laughs> hey, was that a youth rally, all right, it's awesome. Miss Candy Prater, it's incredible. Yeah, everybody. Had to have a preacher. Everybody. And some of your preachers didn't have a certificate of ordination hanging in an office. Some of the preachers that God sent your way could never write a three point sermon. They would never get up and speak in front of people, but they loved you to Jesus. They were eight to five lay people, blue collar people that worked a job just like you. That's how the gospel came to the church of Thessalonica. By spoken word. And, and that's how the gospel is going to come through Fellowship Baptist Church. It's going to come through its members speaking the gospel. So that's the first way. But he goes on. He says, the gospel also comes in power. Look at it verse 5. For our gospel came not into you in word only, but also in power. He knew it wasn't just words alone that saved these believers. It was, it, it was his words, a long watch, with the touch of God upon them that saved these believers. And that's what he said to the church of Corinth. Look, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Watch this. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now I think we should be careful and mindful, and wise, and prepared about the the words we are saying while we're presenting the gospel. I mean, it's a big deal. But we also have to realize that whether it's from this pulpit, or in a classroom, or at your place of work, it doesn't matter how eloquent we are. It doesn't matter how fancy our presentation is. It doesn't matter how cute illustrations and stories that you can tell. Our words, if they don't have the power and touch of God on them, will do no eternal good at all. You got saved. I got saved because God chose to put His touch and power on the words of someone that preached the gospel to us. What does that say to us as a church? I think it implies that if we really want to see souls saved and impacted by the gospel through our church, we must pray. We must plead for the power of God to be upon us when we are speaking the gospel. This is why when a gospel message is preached from this pulpit, those of us who are saved, we don't need to check out. Thinking, oh, that's just a Sunday morning message and we we don't really need that one. I wish you would preach something that was actually relevant to my life. There couldn't be anything other than the gospel more relevant to your life even after salvation. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is still working in you and giving you the power through which to live the Christian life every single day. On top of that, you should be praying for the preacher. There are souls in the balance, church. When a gospel message is is preached, I guarantee you that God has sent somebody into this building to be under the sound of our voice and the, the, the preaching of the gospel from this word of God. And when that happens, you have to be diligent and serious and convicted in your heart that without the touch of God on it, it will make no eternal difference. When's the last time you sat in the pew and prayed without ceasing for the power of God to be upon the preacher? I think by, by, by the looks, some people, I feel like you're praying the whole sermon. I mean, it's every head bowed and every eye closed before we get to the invitation. (laughs) I'm trusting that you're praying for the touch of God on our lives. But in all seriousness, here's what the Apostle Paul told the church of Colossae, with all praying also for us, that God would open to us a door of utterance. Church, pray for us that God would open up a door of utterance, a power of clarity to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. We need to pray for what goes on in this building. We need to pray for our missionaries around the world. Listen, the the power that comes upon the preached gospel is a result of God's people asking for it and pleading for it and praying for it. Go home tonight with your family. Grab a missionary card that you grabbed before. Look at our missionary book. Pray for a missionary tonight. Pray specifically that God would open unto them a door of utterance. Pray for our missionaries in China. Pray for our missionaries in in, in the Middle East. Pray for our missionaries who are under persecution especially. The gospel comes in word, it comes in power. Notice third, it comes in the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 5. For the gospel came not into you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. Think about from where the power of the gospel does not come. Would you do that? Paul didn't say the power of the gospel comes in our programs. I love the programs at Fellowship Baptist Church, don't you? We have Kids for Christ on Wednesday night, Flyers Clubs on Wednesday night, Youth Impact. On Wednesday nights, I I love our bus program that goes and picks kids up and brings them to church. I love our children's church programs on Sunday morning, our nursery programs. I love love our Easter programs, our Christmas programs, our patriotic programs. I love the programs that we have in Friend Day and the programs that we have in in our missions conference and all of that. But the power does not come in the program. It doesn't come in what we do. We don't get a plan. The power of the gospel. It doesn't come in our talent. I could articulate with the greatest of passion and eloquence and persuasion, as our pastor does often, we could get behind the pulpit and light it up, so to speak. But without the Holy Ghost, it's worthless. It doesn't come through my personality. It doesn't come through my talent. And be careful about that, by the way, judging the power of a message by the personality of the preacher. Because that's the trouble the church of Corinth got in. I like Apollos, but I like Peter. I like Paul. I like Jesus. It's all based on talent. It's all based on personality. Fooey with that. If a preacher's loud, great. If a preacher's quiet, great. So long as he's preaching a clear, accurate interpretation of the Word of God and applying it to our life, the Holy Ghost can use that to change a life. When someone stands behind this pulpit that you don't particularly like, even if that's me, understand that there is somebody working that's far more important than this guy. And it's the Holy Ghost. Every time, watch this, every time the gospel is preached from the pulpit, did you know the Holy Ghost is working? He's doing a ministry that the preacher could never accomplish. When I was a junior in college, I went with Brother Alfred King. He's our church player in Oro Valley. To a class called Homiletics, where they teach you how to write a sermon. Both of us sat on the front row. Both of us heard the same quote from an author of our textbook, whose name was Haddon Robinson. And when I graduated from Bible College, Alfred had taken this this wood board... And, and, and he had gotten some kind of tool where he engraved, or burned rather, the letters of, and the words of this quote that we heard. And here's what it says. It's in my office. You could see it if you want. It's great. His throne is the pulpit. He stands in Christ's stead. His message is the word of God. Around him are immortal souls... The Savior unseen is beside him. The Holy Spirit broods over the congregation. And angels gaze upon the scene, and heaven and hell await the issue. He's talking about preaching. What association and what vast responsibility. So every time the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit is walking through the aisles and into the hearts of His people doing the ministry that the preacher can never do by himself. That's the ministry of conviction and comfort and guidance and counsel. Which implies this. When we as God's people, the church, come to God's house and souls are weighing in the balance... And the Holy Spirit is such a crucial part to the saving of those souls. Please hear me. We as saved believers who assemble in this place every week should be careful to not do anything or say anything that would grieve or quench the Holy Spirit's working among us. Could it be just just a guesstimation? Could it be that we don't see as many people walking an aisle during invitation time anymore to get saved? Could it be that that's not as much about the personality of our culture being more private or the absence of biblical preaching as much as it is about saved believers and preachers who are quenching the Spirit of God? 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll get to it at the end of the service, says this. Quench not the Spirit. This is so serious. This is so serious. What does that mean? We'll preach on it later. But to quench simply means to extinguish. Serious means of a subject state or activity It just told me what quench means, Siri did. Steve got me this new band, by the way, it's a little tighter than it on you. It means to extinguish. I was in a serious point. It's pathetic. Just quench the spirit, by the way. To stifle the power or energy of something. That's why you use a fire extinguisher. Stifle the power, the energy of the fire. Ironically enough, the Bible likens the spirit unto a fire in Acts 2. So every time you come to worship, don't miss this, you're either fueling the fire of the spirit or you're pouring water on it. How does that happen? How do we come in and hinder the, the, the Spirit's working in the hearts of the lost and even the saved alike? How do we grieve the Spirit? How do we quench the Spirit? Look at these verses. He, he, Ephesians 4, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed into the day of redemption. And then he gives a list of how we could do it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor And evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Did you notice the list of sins that can grieve and quench the Spirit is primarily dealing with your relationships? The Holy Spirit's working among us and His willingness to affect hearts as we preach the gospel is grieved and even extinguished when we aren't right with each other. And I don't think we give much thought to the overall effect of our broken relationships within the church family. And how that has an extreme effect on the Spirit's ability to work among us and especially in the hearts of the lost. We come into church, I'm afraid, quite often angry with another brother or sister in Christ. And don't think a thing about it. Oftentimes, the angry ones can be standing behind a pulpit, teaching a class, holding a microphone in their hand. Evil speaking. Sometimes we gossip in the church more than we gossip anywhere else. And give no thought to the overall effect that is having on the spirits working in our service. I don't care if you're not even the preaching service, you're in the corner of a building gossiping with somebody else. You better believe that's grieving the Spirit of God. Bitterness and wrath and malice. And, and can I add this in there? That, 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 that we're not just talking about church family. Uh, per, perhaps we're talking about your immediate family that you come to church with. Brother Jake Potter, when he preached, talked about the minivan transformation. You and your wife aren't friends in the minivan, but when you get out of the minivan, you love each other all of a sudden in the church parking lot. It just, like, Transforms. But we got to be careful because we can come in and just be at total odds with our spouse... ...and not even think for a second how that affects the believer down the road from you. They'll never even know that you're at odds with your spouse. They'll never even know you're at odds with your kids. They'll never even know you're bitter against your parents. They'll never even know that. But when you bring that into God's house, you've got to recognize the fact that that grieves the Spirit of God. That hinders the Spirit working. So don't be fooled into thinking... That you can have a right vertical relationship and wrong horizontal relationships it's impossible if you aren't getting along with God's children if there's bitterness wrath vindication malice anything in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ you better believe it you better believe it you're limiting the work that can be done from this pulpit no matter how eloquent or persuasive or powerful the sermon may be so there's three ways in word and power And in the Holy Ghost. Let me give you a fourth. I love this one. The gospel comes in much assurance. Verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Paul was not talking obviously about his confidence and his ability. He was talking about the assurance he had in his heart of the wonder-working power of the gospel. How did he know that? How did he preach to the Thessalonians with such assurance in the midst of that Jewish synagogue? just after getting beaten and imprisoned for doing it in another city. Here's why. Because he had seen firsthand the wonder-working power of the gospel in his own life. He was a murderer, persecuted Christians. But the gospel totally transformed him. And on top of that, he had just left Philippi where God did a miracle in people's lives, starting with a lady named Lydia, Acts chapter 16, a seller of purple. Financially stable individual who had a large enough house for the people of God to start a church there and He led her to Christ and he went to a little damsel girl who was possessed with the devil and He led her to Christ and then they got put in jail Supernaturally escaped by way of earthquake and the Roman jail that was in charge of keeping them knew that he was gonna get a death sentence Anyway for letting the preachers escape and so he was gonna just thrust himself upon his own sword and Paul said hold on a second There's hope The jailer said, Sir, tell me what i got to do to be saved. And Paul led him to the Lord, and then he saw the wonder, work, and power of the gospel go to the jailer's home and transform his entire house. And all of them were baptized. No wonder he gets to Thessalonica in the middle of the synagogue. And he has all kinds of confidence that the power of the gospel can change anybody, can save anybody from anything at any time. And that's his point. Listen, when we preach the gospel, when we give the gospel, we can do so with the assurance that it can work effectively in anybody's life. You listening to me, children's church worker? It it, it can work in the most rowdiest of kids in the J-12 department. You listen to me, bus worker? It can work in the craziest bus kid's life. Listen to me, nursery worker. Every nursery worker that cuddles those babies, over 30 of them in our nursery today, the gospel can save every one of those babies when it comes time for them to make their own choice by faith. We have to be convinced and have assurance in our heart. And how can we do that as a church? Because we have seen the wonder working power of the gospel save a ton of people through this ministry, it saved the drunk. It can do it again. It saved the thief. It can do it again. It saved the liar. It can do it again. It saved the adulterer. It can do it again. It saved the religious elite. And it can do it again. May we preach the gospel and speak the gospel and share the gospel with much assurance. Talking about the coworker, you don't even waste time speaking to, let alone sharing the gospel with, because they're so far gone morally, the gospel can still save them. Talking about the family member that has shut you down every time you try to talk to them about the Lord. The one one that has never agreed to come to church with you and told you to stop asking a long time ago. The gospel can still save them. Talking about your friend that you golf with or that friend from high school that you still stay in contact with. Because they mean a lot to you. Man, you don't want to say anything that's going to hurt that relationship. But you know they don't think of God like you think of God, and you find a relation, a, 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 a conversation with them about the gospel nearly impossible, the gospel can still save them. The friend that you go to school with, young people, that makes fun of you for going to church, the gospel can still save them. God help us to have confidence in the wonder-working power of the gospel. Here's the last one. It comes in word and power and the Holy Ghost and much assurance, and it comes by men of character. Look at verse 5, the end. For our gospel came not in you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Pastor touched on this this morning. The manner in which Paul and Silas lived their lives. Watch did not contradict the message they were preaching. That's why it had such a great effect. It's because their lives were consistent with their message. I think that's why Paul wrote, Brother Tanner, in 1 Timothy, that the first requirement of a pastor is to be blameless. doesn't mean perfect. It means above reproach. It means a testimony that people can't look at and blame for sin and wickedness and holiness. Later in the list, he sees... He he says they must have a good report of them which are without. The reason this is so important is because people in our culture do not divorce a man's words from a man's character. People in our culture don't listen to people they don't respect. I think generations before me did. You know why? One word, authority. It didn't matter who it was, if they were in a position of authority... My dad's generation and older generations just listened because they were authority. I hate to say it, but that's not the culture and the generations in which I'm ministering to today. If they don't respect you, because you've done something to ruin credibility in your own life, in their their perspective, they won't listen. And you can say, well, they need to get well, they don't need to get over it. We need to act like Christians. We need to live holy lives. That's how the gospel comes with much power is when men are preaching it who have good character. So when the Thessalonians heard Paul preach, there was no contradiction. I think a big reason why a lot of lay people particularly don't witness, don't speak the word, don't share the gospel, let alone maybe invite somebody to church, is because they understand that their life doesn't match up with the words. I think for some it's less about a lack of courage. And it's more about the fact that I know what I do on Saturday night. And they do too. And for me to invite them to friend day just doesn't make sense. And God have mercy on us if that's the case. Because we are entrusted with the best news, the life changing news of the gospel. And we have no right to discredit it with the choices we make. It's not our gospel. We have only been entrusted as Christians to manage it, to steward it. And when we live in a way, that hurts our credibility, contradicts its message. We are not being good stewards of the life changing gospel. Right. And, I, and I hope that you'll really consider how you talk at work about your boss or to your employees. I hope you'll consider that because people are listening. Yes. And I hope you'll consider how you treat your spouse in front of your lost family members. Because your family members are watching how you treat your wife. Watching how you treat your husband. Watching how you deal with your kids. And I hope you'll be careful what you put into your body when you go to the work party. Because there's just some substances that carry a reputation with them. And we shouldn't want to be a stumbling block to anybody hearing the good news of the gospel because of our indulgence. I want you to think about that. And be careful about the things we wear. Be careful about the things we ink on our body. I'm not being legalistic at all. I'm trying to tell you that the power of the gospel is dependent upon the character of the messenger. And I understand God can work through and around and over ungodly people. The scripture is Is so clear about that. He used wicked kings to accomplish good things. And he he uses frail sinners to preach the gospel. We don't have to be perfect, but we can't disqualify or discredit it from changing a life because of just silly choices we make. When you go to work, you're going as a steward of the gospel. So be a man and a woman and a teenager and a college student of character. How does the gospel come? That's the question Paul answers and brings thankfulness to his heart. It comes in word. If it comes in word, be ready and willing to speak. It comes in power. If it comes in power, don't just rely on your words. Pray for God's touch. It comes in the Holy Ghost. If it comes in the Holy Ghost, don't don't do anything that would grieve or quench his working comes in much assurance. If it comes in much assurance, don't be shy about it. Don't underrate its power. Don't disqualify the most wicked of people around you because they'll just never get saved. The gospel can change anybody. It comes by men of character. So live your life in a way that is consistent with your message. Stand to your feet, every head bow.